Hello, welcome to All Things Sedation uh, with your host. Uh, my name is Michael Dare and it's January 7th, 2020. And we're broadcasting here from, uh, well, it's my home office in Squamish, British Columbia, Canada. And that's just about an hour north of Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and uh, being January 7th, it is raining torrentially here. Um, and um, that's pretty normal. But since the temperature is hovering just above freezing, that means a massive dump of snow uh, just north of us, about 40 minutes up at Whistler Blackcomb, which is uh, one of the biggest ski resorts in North America. So this is uh, the topic uh, today is um, captainography, uh, part B, which looks a little bit more into detail about um, all the possible uses of captainography. So in part one, we discussed uh, types of uh, captainography and we also discussed uh, side stream versus uh, mainstream captainography. We looked at, um, or we discussed colorimetric or what's called qualitative uh, cap, cap or um, end-tidal CO2 detection, which is used for airway placement. Um, and then we, of course, discussed its use in sedation and how it was uh, the earliest indicator that we have available um, and the number one uh, safety seatbelt in sedation to detect any type of respiratory compromise at the earliest possible moment so that we have ample time to fix it. And uh, in part uh, B here, we're going to discuss uh, the waveforms of captainography, the uh, components of the waveform, and we're going to discuss uh, what the waveforms look like in a variety of situations. Um, we're going to discuss what uh, can lead to an increasing end tidal CO2 as far as the quantity of CO2 being exhaled and also what could lead to decreasing um, end tidal CO2 uh, amounts. We'll also look at some of the special uses. Um, I'll discuss some of the special uses of uh, captainography, particularly since uh, many of you listening have to take your ACLS certification, um, uh, particularly its use in um, the cardiac arrest patient. And uh, I just uh, ran an ACLS course uh, the other day and uh, definitely on the final exam, there are multiple questions relating to the use of uh, captainography in uh, cardiac arrest. Basically in the ACLS, if there's been a, uh, a change in the guidelines that's significant in the last 10 years, then you can be guaranteed that on the final exam, they will cover several questions in that area. So some of the biggest changes in the last 10 years in ACLS have been um, uh, the refocusing of resuscitation um, all around high quality CPR, particularly chest compressions and the movement of blood, and trying to find every possible way to minimize interruptions in chest compressions during codes. And another um, thing that sort of came to the forefront in the last decade has been the addition of the use of uh, captainography and tidal CO2 monitoring during cardiac arrests and the plethora of information that we can gain from that. So we'll discuss that and we'll also look a little about the relationship between perfusion and end tidal CO2 and that there is a linear relationship in general. 
The one nice thing about dental sedation is we are dealing with generally very stable patients who are ASA 1s and 2s and occasionally ASA 3s. And, um, and we're in a very stable situation. So when we see um, baseline end tidal CO2 readings, um, we can correlate um, as those readings change uh, to what is most likely going on with the patient. Um, in patients who are more dynamic as far as their uh, physiological status, like a sick patient in an ICU, some of the correlations that I'll mention between entitled CO2, say in cellular metabolism, etc., um, are a little more complex to figure out. But in the sedation setting with a very stable patient, um, there is some extra information we can also gain from entitled CO2. So uh, one of the first things I just want to briefly review is uh, some of the physiological aspects um, relating to captainography. Basically, CO2 uh, gas, uh, as it's exhaled from the lungs, um, is, um, is formed in the process uh, of uh, aerobic metabolism. So uh, factors that uh, can affect the end-tidal CO2 reading include um, what type of cellular metabolism is going on, um, whether there's aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism, um, also um, cellular metabolism where there's a um, hypermetabolic state. Uh, an example in anesthesia would be um, uh, in malignant hyperthermia. If a patient uh, goes into malignant hyperthermia, um, what we would see is an increased uh, metabolic, uh, um, metabolic drive within the cells and therefore we would have a higher uh, consumption of oxygen and also um, the byproducts of that increased metabolism would, uh, would be reflected with an entitled CO2 that's rising. That would also be the same in a febrile patient. Um, so we have the issues of cellular metabolism and things like uh, hypothermia, hyperthermia, febrile states, uh, certain disease processes. Um, they can affect uh, the actual process of the, um, of the Krebs cycle and of the formation of CO2 gas. Uh, the next factor that uh, makes up the entire uh, concept of respiration, so that was cellular respiration, and then we also have the transport component. Uh, so there is a correlation between the ability to um, produce uh, various levels of perfusion and cardiac output to the amount of CO2 being um, exhaled. So this relates uh, specifically uh, um, in a big way to the topic I'll be talking about uh, shortly, which is um, its use in advanced cardiac life support in a cardiac arrest situation. And then, of course, the last piece of the puzzle, so we have what's going on at the cells, cellular metabolism. We have the transport system between the tissues um, back to the lungs. And, of course, we have the ventilation component occurring um, between the alveoli and the atmosphere. So um, we have the health of the pulmonary circuit itself and the health of the, um, of the bronchial tree uh, that will come into play as far as how much CO2 gas is being formed. So the next part of uh, what I'll discuss is just a little bit more detail about the capnograph waveform that you see on your monitor screen. So the capnograph uh, starts uh, with phase one and goes all the way through to phase four. 
So in phase one, we have basically the last components of exhalation going on. So that's the baseline, uh, which normally would be sitting at zero millimeters of mercury partial pressure of exhaled CO2. If it's sitting above that, that would mean that possibly you have not zero calibrated your machine for the day. Or if they were wearing um, some type of non-rebreather mask or they were a patient who was on a ventilator, it might mean that they are rebreathing CO2 uh, with their inhaled breaths so that it's not going all the way back down to baseline. This could indicate um, inadequate flow on a non-rebreather face mask or in an operating room setting, it would uh, indicate issues with the ex exhalation valve and a ventilator circuit or the, uh, the uh, reabsorption of CO2 in the circuit that goes on. So there's a variety of things when a patient's on a ventilator that can be gained by information about the fact that the um, inhalation phase of um, breathing also has CO2 still in it and it's not going all the way back down to zero. So at a sedation setting, it usually does go to zero, and that would be the flat line in between the uh, top hat shaped waveforms, and that would be phase one. The second component of the waveform is called phase two, and that's at the very beginning of exhalation, when the patient starts to breathe outwards. If they breathe outwards very freely with no restrictive airway disease, then the slope of that wave can be nearly vertical. Um, that component uh, leads to a peaking of the uh, concentration of CO2, which continues to very gradually move upwards. So we have an upwards phase two, and then that curves over into what's called phase three, which is the flat plateau phase of the um, exhalation uh, breath of the patient and the corresponding waveform being created. So with someone who has a bronchospastic disease, a restrictive airway disease, like someone having asthma um, or someone who has COPD, we typically have a more gentle slope in phase two. And it kind of looks like the shape of a shark's fin, you know, as it sticks out of water in the movie Jaws. So they call it the shark fin waveform. And that indicates a more gentle phase two upward slope and more of a, a prolonged um, expiratory phase. Um, once it levels off and creates this near horizontal plateau, then we've entered into phase three. And that's the component of exhalation, which is the most rich in exhaled CO2 gas. At the very end of phase three, just as the waveform starts to head down nearly vertical back to baseline, that's where your uh, peak CO2 level. So end-tidal CO2 monitoring means that the, um, the CO2 level is being measured at the end of a tidal volume being br uh, breathed out, and that's the number you get on your screen. Once the plateau um, ends and the wave shoots back down towards baseline, that's known as phase four, and that's the beginning of inhalation. Again, if someone has very little work to inhale, the wave or that line, phase four line, is nearly vertical going back down. And then we enter back into phase one again. And that's sort of the components of um, the uh, end tidal CO2 waveform and uh, phases one through four.
Now I want to discuss some of the factors that affect the um, end tidal CO2 levels. So what reasons would we have that over a period of time we would see an increasing end tidal CO2 level? Well, one would be that we have increased production of CO2 at the cellular level. So increased muscle activity like vigorous shivering, malignant hyperthermia, um, or a febrile state all would lead to um, an increase from baseline of a patient's end tidal CO2. Um, in certain medical situations, we could have um, increasing cardiac output. So in a critical care setting, if someone has poor perfusion, we often are treating that shock state with a variety of interventions. Uh, one would be using uh, powerful uh, drugs like dopamine and norepinephrine to help increase perfusion to organs and tissues. And of course, if our treatment is working, then we would expect if all other things stay constant, um, that we would have an increasing uh, level of CO2 over time as we have an improvement in, um, in flow between where the CO2 is being produced and uh, out to the lungs. Um, also, something which would lead to an increasing CO2 would be anything where we have um, um, effective uh, therapy for a um, restrictive airway disease like bronchospasm in asthma. If our drug therapy is being effective, then over time we would also see an increasing end tidal CO2. Um, on the side where what would cause end tidal CO2 to increase, um, there's also, of course, uh, issues with ventilation. So if um, we have um, decreased ventilation, um, the patient breathing themselves, say during sedation, we can see changes in the frequency of breaths, but also we can see changes in the fact that due to the inadequate um, mechanics of ventilation going on at the lungs, we don't have as good gas exchange um, and we start to build up CO2 in the blood. So the PA, the partial pressure of arterial CO2 starts to rise. So when we do breathe out, we have breaths with increased concentrations of CO2, increased partial pressure of CO2. So an early indicator of an issue with uh, the breathing of a patient's sedation, that being hypoventilation, either in volume or in the respiratory rate, would be an increasing end tidal CO2 partial pressure. And uh, hypoventilation is partially defined as any end tidal CO2 over 50 millimeters of mercury. Um, on the decreasing side, well, of course, hypothermia would cause decreased uh, um, production of uh, CO2 byproduct. Um, anything where we're in a, a hospital setting using things like muscle relaxants could lead to a decreased production of CO2 byproduct at the cellular level. Of course, decreasing end-tidal CO2 um, in critical care settings could be relate to things like decreasing cardiac output. Um, and of course, uh, also in disease processes in the lungs, if we have the opposite of uh, an effective treatment in asthma, we could see actually uh, decreasing CO2's uh, levels as there's more bronchospasm. 
What I really want to talk about uh, now, though, which is a little more uh, particular, is uh, one is there is a relationship between, um, especially in people with relatively healthy lungs, there is a, a relationship between uh, the partial pressure of CO2 dissolved in the blood um, being carried as bicarbonate or, um, or in its more acidic form, um, that partial pressure in relation to the partial pressure of CO2 that we breathe out. In a healthy patient, which most of our patients in sedation are, we usually have a entitled CO2 difference of two to five millimeters of mercury. Meaning if we had a reading of 40 millimeters uh, of mercury for an exhaled CO2 during captainography, we would expect in a healthy patient without any, uh, any significant um, pulmonary disease or circulatory disease as far as delivery of blood, we would expect to see that the end tidal CO2 would be two to five millimeters of mercury less than what you would see in the blood. So anything that causes the accumulation of end tidal CO2 in the blood will lead to an equivalent change uh, in the exhaled breaths. So again, hypoventilation usually leads to decreasing um, exhalation of CO2, which leads to a increased concentration of CO2 over time in the blood. So when we do have breaths, they are more concentrated as far as CO2. So again, an increasing end tidal CO2 reading would be an indicator of hypoventilation as, along with an increasing respiratory rate being detected. Okay. Following along, I know this is getting a little bogged down, but uh, bear with me. What I'll do last is I think we'll talk about uh, its use in ACLS. It is a mainstay component now of patient monitoring for uh, the arrested patient. And we do sell uh, the type of connector that is required to allow your operatory monitor with end-tidal CO2 to uh, be connected on the end of an advanced airway like an eye gel or an LMA or even an endotracheal tube. So that if you ever were to have a patient have a cardiac arrest and you've placed an advanced airway, for one, you can confirm that the airway is working correctly in ventilating the lungs. You can confirm uh, that there's no foreign body airway obstruction or that the endotracheal tube is not where it's supposed to be, say, as an example, down the esophagus. That's one of the mainstay uses, again, of captainography. But also, captainography uh, is used to give us an idea of the quality of the movement of blood from chest compressions. So, um, during a cardiac arrest with a viable patient, it's expected that if we're doing high-quality chest compressions, we should get an end-tidal CO2 reading over 10 millimeters of mercury. Usually, actually, we'll get much higher readings even than that, up into around uh, 18 to even up to 25 millimeters of mercury. The higher the end-tidal CO2 value, the better the uh, blood flow being created, the cardiac output being created by um, the chest compressor. And it's thought that cardiac output measurements taken during CPR, uh, they produce between 17, I believe, and 25% of normal cardiac output. So we wouldn't expect normal end-tidal CO2 readings as we're ventilating a patient with a bag valve mask and an advanced airway. But if we're doing high-quality chest compressions, we would expect a level greater than 10 
Now, another use of it is uh, to tell us whether a patient has uh, had a return of spontaneous circulation. Um, we're actually quite blind to what's going on with the patient's heart at l during large portions of cardiac arrest now because we're vision being very vigilant about staying on the chest. And anytime you're doing chest compressions, you can't actually see the ECG very well on a cardiac monitor. So we typically use signs of life, which is just what lay people are taught in CPR, and we combine that with another sign of life, which is a sudden increase in end-tidal CO2 uh, over what the baseline was while we were doing CPR. So during a code, if we're doing CPR and say we get an end-tidal CO2 of 18, well, we're going to try to maintain that. If we see it slumping downwards, we may know that we have a fatigue issue with the chest compressor, so we may change that compressor early. If the number is not optimal, we may also uh, coach the chest compressor um, on uh, doing their CPR technique, uh, rechecking, landmarking, depth of compression, etc. Well, if we know that during high quality CPR, we're getting an end-tidal CO2 in a patient, say, of 16 millimeters of mercury, well, then if it suddenly starts to shoot upwards, and it really will shoot significantly upwards if they uh, have a strong return of spontaneous circulation, then that is a sign of life in and of itself. Even though they're not showing any outward signs of life, they're not breathing on their own, they're not opening their eyes, they're not moving muscles, um, the fact that they have a sudden spike and increase in their end-tidal CO2 reading that continues onwards and usually will continue to go upwards as high as about 60 millimeters of mercury as they blow off excessive CO2, well, that would be a reason right there to stop CPR and evaluate the patient. So when I'm teaching ACLS, I often say that we have this tool that's continuously taking the patient's pulse in an indirect way, if you know what I mean. Um, if the patient starts to move their own blood and they produce more cardiac output than we are with our chest compressions, which is quite likely, then we're going to see a very pronounced upward shift in their end tidal CO2 readings being picked up as we ventilate them. And that is kind of correlates to taking a pulse. Yet it's something we can monitor continuously without interrupting CPR to take pulses, stare at monitors, try to interpret ECG rhythms. The average length of time to do a pulse rhythm check, because again, we're not using an AED in most cardiac arrests inside healthcare settings and paramedics, etc. We have to manually decide by looking at the screen what the rhythm is and should we defibrillate or not, as an example. That pulse rhythm check has been shown to take just under 20 seconds on average. So that would be eating up a lot of time at a cardiac arrest, especially since we used to check our pulse every two minutes before and after each defibrillation. So a very large chunk of the time off chest, as it's called, was eaten up by um, pulse and rhythm checks. So we've gotten rid of most of those now, and we just look at signs of life, and then we combine that with end-tidal CO2. Um, another use of end-tidal CO2 is that it can have some di diagnostic value during cardiac arrest. So an example in a pulseless electrical activity arrest being caused by something like a massive pulmonary embolus, we could have an advanced airway correctly placed, confirmed visually, and ventilation is producing uh, near zero end-tidal CO2, even with very high quality chest compressions. 
that would be diagnostic um, or at least uh, make uh, the practitioner, the emergency physician say, be very suspicious that um, one of the differential diagnoses that could that they could be focusing on would be uh, a, a large um, pulmonary embolus that is causing a PEA arrest in their patient. And then one final use of end tidal CO2 monitoring um, is uh, in ACLS. Well, of course, there's one use that I've already mentioned several times, which is confirmation of airway placement for advanced airways, especially endotracheal tubes. Um, so is the uh, extraglottic airway like an eye gel or LMA sealing well and ventilating? Are we getting nice consistent CO2 back? And of course, is the endotracheal tube in the trachea versus in the esophagus? So that's, uh, that's another use of it, of course, during the code. But the final use that I'll mention is just that um, if at the 20 minute mark of a cardiac arrest, um, a patient's end tidal CO2 is consistently staying less than 10 millimeters of mercury, even with very good chest compressions, that uh, um, usually means that the patient's prognosis is very poor, um, virtually nearly zero survival rate. So there's a lot of discussion in the medical profession about um, what levels of end tidal CO2 would indicate that the patient is non-salvageable in a cardiac arrest. And, um, and that is not supposed to be used on its own, but taken together with many other evaluative uh, things and the history of the patient, it can be one other factor that sort of helps in the decision-making process as far as whether a code should be stopped or be continued to be run. And typically uh, that gets evaluated at the 20 to 30 minute mark. And if it's never been anything above 10, uh, usually that's an indicator that the patient's not gonna survive. So uh, that's a brief overview of some of the other uses of entitled CO2, a brief overview of the waveform shapes of entitled CO2 and the phases of the waveform. Um, so um, I hope you enjoyed uh, the Part B talk and I look forward to our next podcast. Um, I think our next podcast may be Understanding Vital Signs. Um, we're also going to have a couple of other short podcasts in the next couple of weeks on some um, interesting sedation topics. But uh, I think we'll do a talk on understanding vital signs because I have noticed that a lot of practitioners, um, a lot of the uh, dental assisting staff, etc., that's often uh, recording the vital signs, um, that there's a little bit of a lack of understanding, sort of how does a well-trained critical care practitioner look at vital signs? What's important? What's not important? What, uh, what can tell you that you're getting a false alarm and that the vital sign you're looking at is incorrect and what can tell you otherwise? So um, it'll be a short discussion. Um, it's part of a lecture that we give all the time during our sedation training courses for both the dentists and the assisting staff. So um, that'll be our next talk and I hope to have that podcast out in the next week or so. So for now, thank you very much and goodbye from Squamish, British Columbia.